Support for Innovation Hub comes from the Graken Center for Addiction at Boston Medical Center, making long-term recovery a reality for patients like Cassie, who now supports others struggling with the disease. You can see Cassie's story and learn more at bmcaddiction.org. Welcome to Innovation Hub. I'm Kara Miller. There's this common complaint about politicians that they're not connected enough to regular people. And even the fact that we don't think of politicians as regular people says a lot. And that's because many politicians have very separate lives from their constituents. They get good health care. They tend to be a lot richer. So if you're a senator with a million dollars, you're a relatively poor senator. But what if politicians could live like the people that they represent for a bit and feel what it's like not to have money at the end of the month or deal with crappy health care or even send your kids to public schools, which a lot of politicians don't do? Paul Bloom is the author of the new book, Against Empathy, The Case for Rational Compassion. And he's a professor of psychology at Yale. And he argues that our love of empathy, of politicians who profess not just that they understand our situation, but that our stress is their stress, that our disappointment is their disappointment, that does a huge disservice to us. Some kinds of empathy, he says, have their place. But in a lot of cases, empathy itself hurts good decision making. One sense of empathy is in terms of understanding, just knowing what it's like, knowing what people want. And I think any good politician needs a lot of that. You need to understand uh, what makes people happy, what they're looking for. You need that to persuade them and also just to do good in the world. Of course, any bad politician, any, any dictator, any demagogue also benefits from that kind of empathy. But, but that's kind of necessary. The sort of empathy I'm arguing against involves shared feelings, feeling people's pain, feeling their suffering. Which is a classic thing sometimes that politicians yep. say, right? I feel your pain. And they, you, we've literally had politicians say such things. And the idea is maybe I don't really have the pain myself, but I recognize that you have it. And somehow I can so deeply internalize that, that I understand what it's like to struggle with a job or to not have a job, whatever it is. That's right. And Bill Clinton, I think, famously right. said that in response to an AIDS activist, I feel your pain. And, you know, he looked like he really meant it. I think that if you look at moral decisions, moral actions, intimate relations, the whole, the whole shebang, this sort of empathy is corrosive. It makes for bad parents and bad doctors. It makes for bad decisions, bad choices about charity, and, and I think ultimately bad leadership. What you really want in a leader, uh, somebody who has any power, is somebody who could try to think ahead, to reason statistically, think in terms of cost and benefits of helping the most people. And empathy works like a spotlight. It zooms you in on a single individual. I mean, one way I put it in my book is it's because of empathy that the leaders in this world and also many of the citizens care a lot more about a baby stuck in a well than they do about climate change. And it's not as if the effects of this are harmless. It's not as if empathy maybe just leaves us a bit of bias or a bit of misapplied attention. The effects of this sort of empathic reaction could be and, and often are terrible. When countries like ours go to war or when we treat vast segments of our population horribly, Often we're motivated by empathic concern for some sufferers. Some of our worst laws in the criminal justice system are motivated by empathy for innocent victims. Some of the stupidest laws we have, the cruelest laws, are named after dead girls. And I think a good leader could step outside that and reason rationally. Are there examples of things that, that jump out to you when you think these are sort of laws that came out of empathy and, uh, in your view at least, it was a mistake? 
Well, I'll take a specific case, a, a, a kind of well-known case, which is the case of Willie Horton. So some yes. of, some people listening to this will be old enough to remember that Michael Dukakis, the governor of Massachusetts, running for president. And uh, what came out during his election run was he had a furlough program in Massachusetts where prisoners were released. And one prisoner, Willie Horton, a large African-American man, assaulted somebody, raped somebody else. And the furlough program was shut down and was seen as an embarrassing mistake. And it was one of the reasons why we never really had a president Dukakis. But it turns out that the furlough program was making a positive difference. Even factoring in those criminals who would offend, there were fewer people being murdered, fewer being assaulted, fewer being raped. But you could easily feel empathy for somebody who was attacked. You can't feel empathy for somebody who would have been attacked but wasn't statistically right. because of a program. Right. I, you know, I um, have vague memories of uh, the Willie Horton incident, and I believe that Dukakis's opponent in the presidential election, George H.W. Bush, ran ads featuring kind of like a mugshot or a very unflattering picture of Willie Horton, basically saying, look, I mean, Dukakis let a rapist out of prison. Is this who you want to be your president? That's exactly right. Willie Horton was was actually raised by Dukakis's opponent in the primaries, Al Gore, but uh, George Bush took it up. Hmm. And, and that illustrates another fact about empathy, supported both by laboratory studies and also common sense, which is your empathy flows very powerfully for people who are look like you, come from your country, your friends, your family, your skin color, attractive, young, babies, teenage girls. Empathy is very difficult to get for people who look very different from you, who frighten you. And uh, the fact that it's hard to get people concerned about issues like mass incarceration is that the people who are incarcerated don't tend to look like the people making the decisions. They tend to have done bad things or somewhat bad things. And so empathy shuts down. I think we end up with a far more just society, more just leaders, if they combine reasoned decision with sort of more distant compassion, wanting to make the world a better place. Is it possible to feel people's pain less, to like turn it down some, you know, to, I mean, obviously, if you're, what your argument is, don't be so guided by empathy, then to some degree, you'd like to minimize it because if it's very, very strong, you know, emotion, it, it can be hard to ignore it. It's a great question. And in some way, it's a sort of parallel question to there are many findings that were biased by implicit racial biases. Even if we want to be egalitarian and fair, right. we find in you know, a lot of evidence that we are favor we favor those of our own race, we favor attractive people over unattractive people and so on. And then the question is, what do we do about it? And in the case of empathy, there are different options. One very specific suggestion, which is quite interesting, is there's a lot of research suggesting that mindfulness meditation and meditative practices actually make people more compassionate, but less empathic. Hmm. And so somebody suffering from burnout, a doctor, a therapist who feels too much empathy and so isn't very good at his or her job, might benefit from meditative practices. But I think in general, there should be more of a cultural shift. What I'd like to see become taboo is somebody arguing for a policy who then drags out some innocent victim. We should save Obamacare because look at this poor schnook. Look how sad he is. Look at his life. Or we should demolish Obamacare because look at this portion of <laughs> Right, right. There's always going to be, if you're talking about leadership in terms of government, any broad, interesting policy is going to have winners and losers. 
inevitably in the short term. People are going to suffer no matter what you do. Gun control, affirmative action, abortion. And so we should try our best not to be swayed by pictures and videos and sad stories and ask cold-blooded questions like, which healthcare system is going to help the most people and provide the best health care and so on? And tell our politicians, don't give me these stories. Here's the problem I have with that. I think that somebody who said, listen, everybody, I'm not going to focus on this abduction case or forget the case of Willie Horton, you know, forget this, the case of this rapist. I really want to focus your attention on, on this chart here. And this, this yes. shows you, this shows you who would really be helped by this healthcare law or who would really be helped by this uh, recidivism law or whatever it is. I cannot imagine that that person would be elected. I don't feel like that's how we elect people for good or for bad. So I wonder if you're saying, here's the ideal scenario, but I don't know that we can achieve it. I'm sort of saying that. I agree with what you're saying. If I ran a charity, I would certainly use empathic appeals myself. Mm -hmm. If I was a demagogue and trying to instill hatred against Muslims or Mexicans, I would use empathy for victims of people who've lost their jobs or victims of crimes and so on. It's always there. It's like a salt that adds flavor to everything, and it's very tempting. You're listening to Innovation Hub. I'm Kara Miller talking with Paul Bloom, a professor of psychology at Yale and author of the new book, Against Empathy, The Case for Rational Compassion. Do you think that if we jettisoned empathy to some degree that we would have less nepotism, parochialism, nationalism, then in general we are used to. Because, I mean, I think one of the appeals of all of those things is you feel the pain more of people that you know or people who are like you than you do some girl in a refugee camp 5,000 miles away from you. And, and I mean, would that be a good thing? To, I mean, because we think of nationalism as, I, I don't know. I mean, I, I think there's people who think of it as bad and some people who think it is really, really good to support your own first. But would there be more, less sort of supporting your own if we were less empathic? There would be less. I think that empathy tends to exaggerate and increase our biases. Empathy is an emotional system that's extremely vulnerable to bias, more than most. And so if we were to sort of strip empathy from our brains or more plausibly just have a bit less of it in public discourse, I think we would be better able to appreciate that a Mexican life and an American life from the grand scheme of things are worth the same. Hmm. And even though somebody is not pleasant to look at, maybe they're homeless, maybe they're, they disgust you, still they're a person. And even though empathy is silent, that doesn't take away from their, from their rights, from their importance. I don't think it would go away. There are all sorts of other cognitive systems we have that, and these also reflect all sorts of biases, and not all biases are bad. So I think it's wrong if I were to favor white people over black people. If I were to argue, I, I'm just going to patronize white stores and give money to white people over black, that seems wrong. But it doesn't seem wrong if I say, I'm going to value my own children over your children. Mm -hmm. I have that preference, and I actually, I'm going to, I sort of going to sign up for that preference. I like right. that preference. Right. I am not ashamed of that preference. And I think some preferences towards friends and family are so ingrained in our psychology, so much part of the way we think, that it's asking too much to try to reject them. Hmm. But racial preferences, I have a very different feeling about. And national preferences are complicated. 
I think there are rational arguments for favoring your own country over others. It just is how the world works better. But I think we take it way too far. I think the world would be much better if we stop obsessing so much about national boundaries. So on the other side of this whole argument um, is, I think, some pretty powerful arguments the other way. So you could argue, for example, that a lot of terrible things that have happened in history, slavery, the Holocaust, would have been averted or uh, ended more quickly if people had had some empathy for the people who were suffering under those regimes, you know, in those situations and felt like, you know, I'm not just going to think about me and I'm okay right now. I'm going to think about the people who are sort of on the receiving end of all this pain. And what would it be like to be one of those people? But if more people had thought that way, imagine how much more quickly some of those terrible times could have ended. I think what you're saying is exactly right. If, you know, if slave owners had rich empathy for slaves, they wouldn't be slave owners anymore. Mm -hmm. If concentration camp guards had empathy for the inmates, uh, the Holocaust would have never happened. I agree with that. It's just empathy doesn't work that way. Empathy is, is, is almost always stronger for your side than for the other side, for your family than for strangers. And in fact, when you look at the most evil institutions in the world, it's not as if they were sort of anti-empathic. The people who ran them, the slave owners, the concentration camp guards, were not cold-blooded psychopaths. They were richly empathic people who had friends and families who they loved and so on, they just didn't empathize with the people they were enslaving and killing. And this is how empathy works. Mm -hmm. So people might bring up, you say, well, you know, what about a movie like, like Schindler's List? Doesn't that show you how empathy could be extended towards innocent victims of the concentration camps? Right. But for every Schindler's List, there's A Birth of a Nation, which is a movie that inspired tremendous support for the KKK. Mm -hmm by telling stories about innocent white victims, white women, brutalized by blacks. So empathy is an unreliable moral guide. Mm -hmm. And what you're saying, too, is anybody can deploy it. They, they don't have to be good people. They can be not good people, too. That's right. I mean, I think that's a profound point. Many people, and in my experience, particularly liberals, tend to think empathy is on their side. And if only they could kind of ramp up the empathy on the other side, then everybody would agree with them. But if you look at real political debates, actual ones, it's not a question of whether to empathize. It's a question of who to empathize with. Do you empathize with the parent of a toddler shot by a stray bullet and then want more gun control? Or do you empathize with a woman who's raped because she's not has no right to have a weapon to defend herself? Mm -hmm. With the Syrian immigrant who really wants a place to live, the refugee, or with the person who's going to lose his job because a foreigner is going to take it away from him? So... Politicians push back and forth, finding somebody to get you to em empathize with them. And this is true even with sort of the great evils you were talking about before. Slave owners, for instance, would give empathic arguments for the institution of slavery, one of which being that they needed to take care of these people who were unable to take care of themselves. Hmm. Well, it also speaks to the fact that sometimes when terrible events happen, part of the argument that the aggressors make is that these aren't people, really. They aren't as much people as we are, you know? So being cruel to them is okay. You don't need to feel empathy for them because they're not 
re, you know, they're subhuman and we don't feel empathy as much for, you know, like snails or, you know what I mean? I think that is part of, that's part of the technique too, is that they, these people don't deserve empathy. I think you're right. I think dehumanization plays a pretty serious role in a lot of these, uh, a lot of these horrible events. I, I got into a disagreement once with a prominent psychologist. We were talking about uh, the the conflict between uh, Israel and Palestine. This was over over Gaza at the time, and he just said, "Wow, if only each side had more empathy." But my response, which I really do believe, is each side had tremendous empathy. The the Israelis had enormous empathy for at the time suffering of Israelis who were mm-hmm, killed mm-hmm. by the Palestinians. The Palestinians had extraordinary empathy for their their friends and families who they believe were killed and and it falsely imprisoned by the Israelis. There was no shortage of strong feelings. There just wasn't empathy for the other side because that's not how empathy works. If we were gods and could feel empathy for every individual at the same time regardless of their relationship with us, maybe I wouldn't be against empathy. But empathy works as it does. And so this is why we should seek out better alternatives. So if you distilled your message down and you thought about how to sort of turn it into practical advice for people who make decisions in their everyday lives, I wonder what your advice would be because a lot of what we do all the time is say, like to a little kid, you know, don't hit Jenny. Because how would you feel if you were Jenny and you got hit, right? I mean, that, that's the argument. We, empathy comes in all the time when we're trying to teach people to be better people. Um, so what kind of practical advice would you have? So you're, you're actually raising a good point. So there are cases where empathy plays a good role. And you mentioned one of them where if you're insensitive to suffering in another person, a blast of empathy, you know, you're your parent telling you, look, how would you feel if somebody said that to you? Mm-hmm. It can't actually play some role. Mm-hmm. But when it comes to kids and certainly when it comes to adults, I guess the message I would have is don't listen to your heart. I mean, we now have, there's like a thousands of years of philosophy and, and current events, but also a lot of psychological neuroscience research that says your heart is, is biased and enumerate and irrational and short-sighted. And I think we should acknowledge, explicitly acknowledge that the things that sway us, the stories, the pictures, may not reliably map onto the right things to do. That there's a difference between what feels right in the short term and what actually is right. Hmm. And knowing this won't magically make the lure of empathy go away any more than knowing that I have implicit biases will make those biases disappear. But it helps. Yeah. It helps people during their slow, deliberative decisions to say, you know, I see that this person who wants me to support going to war has shown me quite a gruesome QuickTime video, which is very upsetting to me. But maybe that's not a good reason. Maybe I want to hear more about how many people are suffering and how could we make a difference by responding and so on. Paul Bloom is the author of the new book, Against Empathy, The Case for Rational Compassion. He's also a psychology professor at Yale. Paul, thank you so much. Thank you so much for having me on. If 
you want to read more about Bloom's case against empathy and the arguments of some very smart people who disagree with him, we've got a link to the Boston Review, which put together their energetic disputes. That's on our Facebook page, facebook.com slash innovation hub radio. Support for Innovation Hub comes from Cambridge Savings Bank. Introducing the CSB1 package, a checking account combined with investing through Connect Invest to help you build a better tomorrow. CambridgeSavings.com/CSB1